welcome to International Love Story and thank you so much for listening. I'm honored to welcome Jessica in today's episode. Jessica and her husband Abhishek are living in India together with their two beautiful kids. She is originally from America and Abhishek and Jessica got to know each other through mutual friends years ago. But this is a story she can tell better. What I love and what I really enjoyed um, about the talk we had is that Jessica was very open-minded. I could have talked to her for several hours because I just admire how she handles specific things and how she's raising her multicultural family in India. So one of the topics we're also going to talk about in the end is the non-profit organization Jessica and Abhishek are working for and this non-profit organization is one of the reasons why they decided to move to India. I learned a lot in the little time we have. Jessica inspired me and I'm sure you will be inspired as well. Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Christina. I am really glad to be on. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Me too. Thank you so much. And as I said before, you're currently living in India. Um, so can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and why you moved to India? Sure. So I am in am internet marketing by trade, and I'm just kind of had worked in digital marketing for my career. I got an internship in India in 2006, and I had always wanted to work overseas. My dad is an international business. So I got an internship by chance in India, and I was hesitant, but I felt like this was the right next step for me. Mm -hmm. So upon doing my internship, um, I really fell in love with Indian culture. I took a language course, was able to focus and immerse myself to learn Hindi. I wasn't required for the job, but I wanted to be able to connect with the people I was working with. I did not live in a large city. It was a more smaller city. Um, actually, it was a Hindu holy city. So people were very traditional and not very uh, urbanized, I guess you could say, which was wonderful. I loved the experience. So after my internship, I ended up moving back to the U.S. I had been in India around four years or so at that point. Um, and then I was volunteering with an organization in Chicago that helped recent South Asian immigrants to kind of get on their feet. And this other guy was also trying to volunteer with them whose name was Abhishek, living in Indiana, and a friend introduced us and said, hey, this guy's wanting to do the same thing. Maybe you connect, connect with him. Well, we connected and we just really liked each other from the beginning, had so many connections. And uh, so I was in the U.S. at that point. He was also in the U.S. doing his master's degree. And we just connected and we realized we had so many mutual friends already that we didn't know about and became friends and then slowly became something else. Nice. That sounds amazing. So for how long were you dating, may I ask, until you got into a serious relationship? 
Yeah, I think for us, we really realized that it was serious. I guess it, it wasn't serious, but it was intentional from the beginning that, oh, we both were interested in getting married uh, at some point mm-hmm. to someone. And it was just so fascinating that he had been in my country and I had been in his country for about the same amount of time. I had um, lived in a Hindu holy city and his mother is actually quite religious Hindu. So she was really happy about that and was really impressed that I spoke Hindi already. And um, so for them, it was definitely nerve wracking at first. I can talk a little more about my in-laws, but we were together. Abhishek and I, I guess, were together for about a year and a half before we got married. So it wasn't a very long, drawn out thing. We met, we were uh, basically started, I guess, dating right away and um, got to know each other. And then of course, got to meet each other's families. He got to meet my family within a few months. So my dad actually had a business trip in India coming up. And he had said, Jess, do you want me to go and meet your potential in-laws. I said, that would be great. So he actually went and met Abhishek's parents before I met them. Oh, So my father went and kind of did a little bit like a love to arranged marriage thing where he sat down with my in-laws and the elders of the family and he just sat and drank tea with everyone and so he just kind of sat and, and talked with the elders and it was really a sweet thing for him and, and really helped us finalize and seal the relationship uh, for both sides. So both sides felt comfortable. So your family was um, very welcoming and the other way as well. So it was no problem at all from the beginning. Or were there any issues? Yeah, that's a good question. For my family, there were not any objections. I think they were prepared for me to get married to an Indian. They saw how much I loved India. And anytime we would go somewhere, if I would see an Indian. This was when I was quite new in Hindi and I had just come back from India and I missed it. And so anytime I would see an Indian person that was speaking Hindi at the grocery store or something, I would go and talk to them. Oh, hello. And blah, 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 blah. I would say, Namaste, aap log kaha se hai? India mein rahi, char saal, blah, blah, blah. And I would start talking and people would just be blown away that this random suburban Chicago person was talking Hindi to them. <laughs> so my parents realized that. I was a little different at that point. That was no problem from my side. Now, his side, we had to be a little more mm-hmm. careful. We had to go through the right channels. So we waited until we were serious enough that we were pretty sure we wanted to move forward. But where we weren't so serious that if his parents were totally, totally, totally against it, that um, we would be comfortable, like, considering breaking it off. So it was a fine line. Fortunately for us, Abhishek's cousin, who is several years older than him, got married to a non-Indian and actually an American guy, wonderful guy, Mm -hmm. the year before we did. So that was the first person in the whole family who had gone outside of getting married to an Indian person. So uh, we'd had a few other non-arranged marriages in the family, but she was the first to like go completely outside of Indian um, group. That kind of helped to set things in a good direction. And then we just kind of slowly, we talked first to my sister-in-law, who is an elder sister of Abhishek. And then 
she told his parents who then wanted to find out more. So it was kind of this, you can't, in my husband's family, especially, you can't like talk directly to your parents about those kind of things that, hey, I want to get married to someone. It was like, whoa, that's just too much. So he told his sister and she told them. Then eventually I met her first. My dad met his parents. They all, you know, felt really comfortable with the whole situation. And then we finalized our engagement. Wow, that sounds like a huge step you just took. I mean, you guys met and one and a half years later, you got married. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And it was an Indian wedding or was it Indian American? It was a little bit of both. But if you would look at the pictures, you would say this is a full-on Indian wedding. Mm -hmm. So we had the traditional sanskars. We had the traditional uh, Bihari traditions, which is the state where my husband is from. So we had a lot of the traditions that he grew up with. And really, we worked really hard to get the ceremony right. It was very challenging to get it quite right. But we did. We, we were able to do that. We invited my side, his side. A lot of people came. His parents came from India. A lot of his relatives uh, that are settled in the U.S. and Canada came. So we had a big group of, from both sides. It was really wonderful. That was 11, almost 11 years ago. So how many people did join your wedding to celebrate the love with you? I think it was about 200. Oh, yeah, that's a big number. <laughs> We didn't have the huge Indian wedding of like a thousand people. Yeah, but still big enough. I mean, in Germany, for example, it's common having around 100 people and 100 people is a lot already. So, and I guess for Americans, it might be around the same. It's the same. Yeah. A good number of guests. And may I ask, did you plan the wedding? Did you plan it together? Did you have a wedding planner or how did you arrange everything? You know, at that, this was 11 years ago and I have seen so many more wedding planners and South Asian, American or mixed Desi kind of planning. People come up or providers really come up, but then There was nothing. I actually was clipping pictures out of magazines of what kind of langa I wanted, what kind of look I wanted at the wedding. It was all us. So he and I together made all the decisions. And it was a little hard, I think, to communicate some of the things to my parents. I think my grandmother and my stepmother were a little upset that I didn't wear a white dress, but they got over it. They saw that that's what I really wanted. And my favorite color happens to be red. So <laughs> which is what I'm wearing today, what does I wear on my wedding day? So they kind of were like, if that's what you really want, fine. But they just felt a little bit sad that I didn't do the traditional thing. And they, mm. by the time the wedding came around, they were fine. But it was, it was hard at first. So when did you guys exactly get married? Which year? 2010. 2010. And... You lived in the U.S. at that time. We did. We did. We got married in the Chicago area, lived in the U.S. So there are so many Indians here. So we were able to find a lot of the things that we needed, mm -hmm. uh, particular items for the wedding ceremony. We were able to find all of that stuff. We had even rented an uh, Indian um, uh, banquet hall. 
for our reception. So they had Indian food, they had everything was kind of ready to go. Did you feel at any point that it was too much for you to handle? Because I can only imagine how much pressure it must have been at some point to basically bring two cultures together, two families together, or were you completely easygoing because you knew that after all, it will be fine? No, we had a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. There were some moments where one of my bridesmaids stormed off, got out of my car when we were on the way and, and left the bridal, uh, the bachelorette party because it was so chaotic. Oh, one of my friends also told me, you know, Jessica, this is the most chaotic wedding I've ever been a part of. <laughs> and then one of Abhishek's relatives said, you know, Jessica, this is the most organized wedding I've ever been a part of. So I thought, okay, <laughs> so we've upset the Americans and we've impressed the Indians with our level of organization. I think we're on the right track here. This is just the happy medium. <laughs> But um, yeah, it was definitely a challenge. Um, there was a lot of stress. There was a lot of mistakes, but the goal was in the end, as long as nobody hates me when this is done, that's my goal. And, and that was achieved. I didn't lose any relationships. Everyone still was happy with us. No one was offended deeply and we got married and we had a wonderful time. So that was my goal. <laughs> <laughs> And afterwards, you stayed in the U.S., you built your life together. And how was that? So what happened after the wedding? So we moved. I actually moved to where he was living then. Mm -hmm. And I got a job. So the week after our honeymoon, we moved into the, uh, this apartment in Indiana. I got a new job. I remember even going to my first week of my job with all of my mehendi, my bridal henna all up my arms. And in Indiana, people have absolutely no idea what that was. Okay. <laughs> so people thought I had leprosy or something. I mean, people did not know. So we were a little bit off even from the beginning, according to the cultural standards there. And um, yeah, we lived in Indiana. He finished his degree, moved to Chicago, and we lived in the Indian community of Chicago. The, it's the Little India for several years and we were both working and volunteering. We had our first child. And after that, we really felt like we had done what we wanted to do career-wise in the U.S. And we had made a trip or two trips rather to India. And we just really felt like there was some um, something like calling us there. and. We wanted also to be able to kind of make a difference in the community. Um, Bihar, where Abhishek is from, is not the most developed state. It's actually the least developed state in India. And there's a lot of work to be done. We had some friends that are doing volunteer nonprofit work, and they basically recruited us <laughs> to come join them there. And so we slowly um, took, made that decision and decided that, yeah, we wanted to go ahead and, and make that decision and move to India. So that took uh, about one year to get everything together. And uh, we moved back in 2016. So four years ago, you moved back to India to mm -hmm. the um, 
Is it? It's not a city. It's a village. You could say so. Well, that's a <laughs> that's that's a good question. It's a city of about three million. However, it feels like a village sometimes. We have now in the last couple of years, we've gotten some coffee shops. There are really nice, I mean, pretty good malls there with uh, like Indian clothes stores and things like that. There are restaurants and, and, you know, you can get Uber and taxis and things like that. But you also see buffaloes walking down the road. You're going to see more so than any other part of of India. You'll see goats and you'll see people riding their bicycle rickshaws and people, uh, you know, putting garbage inside the, the collecting garbage by the, the, the bicycle rickshaws mm -hmm. and, and dumping it from one place to the next and people selling fish on the street, just laying on the plastic mat and they're fanning it to keep the flies off. Like this is how we get our food, <laughs> you know? Um, so It's, it feels like a village in some ways, and many people are just one generation removed from the village where they grew up. My mother-in-law grew up in a village. She'd never ridden in a car till she was about 16 or 17 years old. It's interesting mix. It's, it's a very interesting place, and we're very thankful to be there. I know that um, because I'm listening to your podcast and I know that one of the topics of your podcast is living in India as a white person. But in your case, I mean, you knew already what to expect, but then you didn't because you are living in India since four years. You are still experiencing new things every day, I guess. Like cultural-wise, is there anything that still can shock you? Yes, all the time. Even being fluent in Hindi, living in India for, I guess, now eight years, mm -hmm. having two kids there. I, I had a child in India. I had, you know, my second child was born there. My kids go to school there. I mean, there's so many things that I feel very integrated into life, but there are still things that shock me. <laughs> um, I think sometimes the ways that women are treated can shock me. And this is not to say that India treats women badly all the, everywhere all the time. That's not true. I believe that um, there are really wonderful, wonderful movements happening where women are treated very well and uh, women are in leadership and uh, women are being educated in, in massive quantities. But there are times when you Fine. The variance is, is very great. I would say you could be treated really, really well or really, really bad. And sometimes that lower end of the, the treatment catches me quite by surprise. So I would say that. But again, I think that has to do with law and order. It has to do with people not exactly knowing where to place me or, you know, think old traditions that maybe don't match with the modern society. So sometimes it happens, but overall, I feel people treat me very nicely. And I've been very thankful and very blessed to, um, to live in Bihar. You feel like you were welcomed with open arms after all. And even though if there are still a few challenges. Yes. For the most part, I've been very welcome. And I also think that 
being a white person, there are particular privileges and benefits that I get just because I'm white. I'm pretty aware of that and conscious of that. So sometimes, again, people will treat me really, really, really nice or really bad, depending on the situation. But most of the time, I'm treated very, very nicely. I mean, on first glance. Once people get to know me, once people are familiar with me, I think I'm treated probably like most everyone else. But on first glance, sometimes people assume things about me that aren't true, either in a good way or in a bad way. Like, oh, she must be very rich or oh, she must be very bad in cooking or she must be very educated. I mean, it could be a a number of things that people assume, Mm. which may or may not be true. I mean, I can only imagine how it is, even though, as I said before, you knew India from before already, but then living in a country that's not your own for a long time on permanently, Because I guess you are planning to live there for years, right? Mm, Yeah. And then finding out new things every day is exciting, but can also be overwhelming. I just love how you manage and also how you share specific things in your podcast and how open-minded you are basically with what to expect when moving to another country. Um, I mean, you do know Hindi, but you're still somehow learning the traditions and the cultural and having a mix of your American cultural and then the Indian. And I think this is just super interesting how you can Mm -hmm. mix two cultures and have your very own and also raising a family in this, which I think is a very interesting um, topic I would love to talk about in detail with you as well. So you do have two beautiful kids now, and both of them were born in India, right? My son was born in the U.S., the six-year-old, and he really likes to assert that he is American because he was born in America. And then my daughter was born in India, and she still doesn't have a concept of her identity yet. But uh, she's it's so funny because she looks a little bit more like me, so she has more... I guess, Caucasian features in some ways. And so people look at her and you can tell that her mom is white, but my son, you cannot, you wouldn't really be able to tell. He very much blends in, in uh, school. And even when we're out, people don't necessarily take a second look at him, but it's funny because I think she identifies a little more or she behaves a little bit more Bihari, like uh, local language that she uses and the things she eats and things like that. But she actually looks more white. (laughs) And your son says he's American. (laughs) Yeah. He sometimes, I don't know, I think because people in school say, oh, you're American, Mm. you're American. So he's like, oh, I'm American. You know, but here people would probably say, oh, you're Indian. We're in the U.S. right now visiting um, my family, but we're heading back to India very soon. So maybe at the time of the posting of this, uh, we'll probably be back in India. How is it raising two kids in a multicultural relationship? I think, you know, I've, I haven't done it in any other relationship. Can't really compare, but I think it's extremely challenging to really 
understand what are the motivations and and what's your partner thinking about a certain situation. Um, We recently are just going through a really difficult um, season with a couple of things with the kids and, you know, with COVID and all that, of course, there's a lot of things that have changed, but we've noticed that in times of crisis, we both really grasp down to our original cultural identities. So I have a real desire to be free and I don't want to feel trapped. And and then, you know, my husband is is really concerned about other things, about family and his parents and things like that, where security and things that are important to him and important to the way he grew up. So it's very interesting. You just have to really press in and and have good communication and ask where the other person is coming from, even when that person can't necessarily explain it themselves to observe in the culture mm-hmm. what how do other people behave mm-hmm. and give your partner the benefit of the doubt that they're doing the best they can. It's not just them that's weird. There's something else going on behind the scenes. <laughs> mm. So Also, it sounds like you do rely on each other a lot. We both have our specialties, or I guess we both have our things that we are more concerned about than the other person. And my husband has very different instincts about things than I do. And we just have to learn to trust each other and really know that the other person is really doing the best they can. They have a different view. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just different. And you have to kind of come at it from two different ways. If you look back the last years, what was the biggest challenge you and your husband faced? Well, I think that during COVID, the lockdown was very different in India. It was almost like prison. I didn't leave the house for three months, at, even to go out for grocery, for walk, nothing, um, because it was not allowed there. People, police were in the street and they would stop you and ask where you're going. And they were even, you know, beating people up and things like that. So the kids and I didn't go out for several months. And there was just a lot of struggle with understanding it, what's a priority for to keep ourselves healthy. For me, I wanted to stay in India because I knew that it didn't make sense to get on a plane and come over to the U.S. either at that point. And that we needed to be there for my in-laws. They were also there and they're older. They were at risk. And uh, our work was still going on. So we couldn't really leave in the middle of our work. But there were still some things that I needed to be able to do to like remain mentally healthy. And so for us to be able to negotiate what those things were together was really hard. Once lockdown relaxed a little bit, I needed to go out for a walk every day. I even had some issues where people were following me and treating me strangely because I was a foreigner um, and got harassed and stuff on the street, which had never happened to me for many years. I, I had had a little bit in the beginning It just felt very strange to me that I've been here for so many years. I'm wearing completely local clothes, very long, modest clothes. Like there's nothing I'm doing to draw attention to myself except just being a woman. And here I'm getting this harassment. But, you know, my husband was thinking like, well, don't go for a walk anymore. It's like, no, I'm going to because this is my neighborhood and I need this 
Those people are wrong. I am not. So why would I shrink back? So I think things mm-hmm. like that, where we came at it from a different angle, um, mm-hmm. are often a source of of challenge and things we have to work through. But we always kind of have other people to compare to and because he lived in the U.S. for 10 years and now I've been in India for eight years. So I, I see the way that he's looking at it. He sees the way I'm looking at it. And it's not like, oh, there's something wrong with you. It's just, this is the way you grew up. I understand you need this and I'm going to let you take that risk. So I would say just COVID in general was really, really challenging. Um, the way that things were in the part of India we live in was very starkly different from here in the U.S. while we're visiting. It's wonderful to get in the car and just go to the store or just go for a walk. Um, mm. You know, we're at, we're on stay-at-home advisory here in the state of Illinois where we're staying, but it feels so relaxed. I mean, uh, we're not seeing people are getting together, but I can go to the store, I can go out. And um, mm. so it feels much more relaxing here than it is what we went through there. I'm thankful for to be here right now. And I know it's hard everywhere with COVID. There are a lot of things people are going through here, which we don't go through in India, just extreme loneliness and being totally isolated Um, here. It's hard. I'm thankful that we were able to um, figure out some ways to relieve some of the mental stress. And what would your advice be in times like that? Hmm. Because it's tough, yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, don't think that your way is the only right way. Mm -hmm. And try not to take it personally. And just really try to think the best of the other person. If you have a healthy functional relationship where, you know, you, you don't have like, abuse or emotional abuse or things like that. I think you can kind of rely on your trust in the other person and say, hey, everyone around you and your community is behaving this way. And so I, it's normal that you would behave that way. And everyone in my family or my background is behaving this way that I'm behaving. And so, you know, can you give me a break? Because this is my mm-hmm. mechanism of coping. I'm trying to come to your side a little bit, but give, give me credit for where I'm, the space that I've made, the distance that I've covered rather than mm. the distance that you want me to cover that I need to. Like, give me credit for what I can do here because I am moving towards you. So I think that would be my advice is look at the other person, see, the, see what they're actually trying to do and give them credit for that rather than where they need to be <laughs> further down the road. And you were mentioning um, in the beginning that in India you're working for a non-profit organization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know that because this is also actually something you talk about um, in your podcast, Invisible India, that a lot of people actually have those stereotypes of India. And one of those stereotypes is, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a huge difference between rich and poor. So I can only imagine that if 
that's the case that those ones who are poor that they have to suffer a lot right now so how does that affect you because as you said you're working for a nonprofit organization i also know that your husband is quite active as well um to support others who can't support themselves yes um mm -hmm. isn't this affecting you in a way as well Yeah, I think that's a really astute observation. That's not that's not something that I talk about a lot, but it shows mm -hmm. that you're you're really listening in, <laughs> um, and you're really observe some of the nuances. Yeah, so I think in interacting with underprivileged people, it can be extremely overwhelming. And I think I did not grow up with this innate callous to be able to look at people begging on the street or children taking a shower under a little you know, faucet in, in, on the train tracks. Like that was something totally foreign to me and just heart, every time I would see it was just heartbreaking for the first several years, but you have to develop a sense of a thick skin and a sense of, I would say almost callousness, not a hard heartedness. I think that's different. But when you, when you're walking, I would equate it as walking on a very rough terrain with bare feet everything's going to hurt at first. But the more you walk, the more you build up that resistance and you're able to walk and you're able to cope and you're able to function. And I would equate it to that. Is there are days when I get a big piece of glass in my foot because I've seen something terrible or we've, we've encountered a terrible situation, which we're trying to help somebody, but you just have to take, give the time to let those things heal and realize that You cannot fix the problems in any community. That's, I, I've talked about too, a little bit of like white saviorism. We can't save India. We can't fix India. You know, first of all, there's not things to be fixed. You know, society has their own ways of, of working things out, but I can assist where there's a, a clear need. And I really let Abhishek assess what those things are. I don't, I'm not very upfront about these as far as the face of our, our nonprofit work, but Abhishek and other local people really are the ones that are deciding what initiatives we're taking. And I just try to support and, and do everything I can. So I do a lot of the back work administrative stuff and, um, you know, just each day you have to be motivated to say, I can't help the 5,000 people that need help, but I can help. 500 of them if we continue to keep the big picture in mind mm. and if we help five people each day you know it has to be over time it has to be a long-term approach it and and that's where the real change in society comes is one by one and face to face as much as you can i mean in these times you can't but uh, taking it slow and and pacing yourself i think is the healthiest way that i've found And letting locals lead, yeah. letting local people lead yeah. the initiatives. You, or let me phrase it differently. Um, you're raising both kids in India, obviously. Um, how do you teach them that there are social differences, for example? Because I guess that's also a very sensitive topic. Not every parent has to talk about because, for example, in our case, we're living in Germany. So we're mm. living in a bubble. Um, we do have homeless people, but if anything, they could get support by government so they don't have to be homeless. And in India, it's just a little bit different than here, if I could say it like that. So 
How do, do your kids react on that? To be honest, my kids have a very Indian type of view where they're used to seeing poverty. They're used to seeing that we cannot help everybody. They're used to seeing that we do make it a priority to help people when we can. So we don't really talk. We don't lecture them about these things, but they see in action what's the way that we hope that they can help and serve people. And we do share with them when there's some things. We do shelter them from some of the things that happen. Um, we lost several people that we were acquainted with during covid And if those people didn't, if they don't have a direct connection, you know, we don't share with the kids, oh, that person died from COVID and this and that happened. Or, you know, this, a child the other day got, you know, dragged behind a vehicle and, and they died. Like we don't share those things with the children if they're too raw or too close to home. They see enough traumatic things on a day-to-day -day basis. But um, we also don't shelter them from the things that are just clearly in front of their face. And, um, so I think that's, that's a thing. And we try to be, you know, friendly and compassionate to people that we, that we come across and, um, they're learning that not because of what we say, but because of what we're trying to do. Well, that's, I don't know what to say right now. So oh, that's a lot. Um, cause you see, I'm not as strong as you are. Because as I said, I'm living in my bubble. And um, so this is why I really admire you for what you're doing. Oh. Okay. <laughs> On a brighter note, yeah, you guys are living in India. What are your future plans are you planning to stay in india for a couple of of years what is the plan for the future you know abhishek and i are both on the border of gen x and millennial and so we can't necessarily plan very much farther than three years ahead <laughs> uh that's the millennial coming out And we both just had very, in some ways, kind of transient childhoods. So it's hard to plan more than three years. I can't really see farther than three years. And right now we're planning to still be in India. Mm -hmm. I, we're still planning to be in Bihar for the next several years. I think we may need to move for our children's education at some point, but we don't know where and we don't know when that will be. But we're open and we, um, we see the work that's happening and we want to continue to, to push that forward and be involved. Yeah, so I think that's where we're at, hoping that uh, we can be in India for longer than, uh, yeah, somewhat long term. So for everyone who's listening, is there anything our listeners could do to support? Yes, listen to our podcast. Invisible India podcast. And I would say, you know, follow us on social media. Um, we do sometimes talk about our nonprofit work on there, but I try to keep them kind of a separate thing. Like if people want to learn more about the work we're doing, you know, you can like write to me at jessica at invisibleindiapodcast.com. 
But really what my goal is with the podcast is exploring different ideas, talking about India, talking about some of the nuances of cross-cultural life. So if those are things that are interesting to you, then I would say listen in to that. There's, of course, we have a YouTube channel and things like that as well. So um, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok are things that we're on, Twitter. Um, and yeah, just share with your friends and ask questions so that we can reach more people and discuss things that are interesting to others. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. And thank you for what you're doing as well. This is valuable work and this is unexplored spaces for a lot of people. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. As mentioned, you will find the link of Invisible India in the side notes for you to check them out on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube, and of course their podcasts. They're doing great and valuable work. And if you'd like to just follow us as well on Instagram or Facebook, it's International Love Story. And if you do have questions, feel free to ask anything. Feel free to ask us or feel free to ask Jessica. And if you like what we're doing, leave us some stars or a rating on wherever you're listening to our podcast. We hear each other soon. We hope you had an amazing holiday. 2020 is almost over. Next year, we will publish the next episode on the 12th of January in 2021. Take care and bye!